0: you will turn back in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we will pick up where we left off last week. Romans chapter 1, as you know, we are making our excursion, our journey, our pilgrim's progression through this great anthology that was given to us by God through his servant Paul. We opened up really looking at the special calling of this apostle. And we closed last week with the apostle Paul appreciating the saints, appreciating the saints. In fact, our subtitle after our main theme is the pilgrim's progress through Romans, the apostles love of the saints through the gospel. That's a very good description of the apostle. The apostles' love of the saints through the gospel. He appreciates the saints, especially those at Rome. It doesn't mean he doesn't love the others. If you read the epistles, Paul says the same things over and over again. I thank my God through Christ my Lord for you, remembering you always in my prayers. And what we said last week was that when you love someone, they're on your mind, and when they're on your mind they are people with whom if you have a relationship with God you bring them before God constantly extemporaneously you know just just repeatedly you let let God know that you care for them and you put them before God. That is part of the priestly task of the believer. But there are three areas in which I want to call your attention to briefly where the apostle Paul is aware of this ground of appreciation. First is because he knew that he was unworthy of being one of God's choice servants to the Gentiles. He made it very plain in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 around verse 80. He, he laid out the argument that he knew that he, and he was aware of the fact that he was the chief of sinners, and as that, he was the least of anyone to be called an apostle. So where Paul is coming from is where any of us can come from if we understand that we are only privileged because of the grace of God. It's a tension that should operate in our soul, that what we are, we are only by God's grace and that should we be operating out of a mindset that knows how to express agape and that is love for others at the highest level of redemptive reality, that too is a grace of God. It is not natural to you and me to care about others, especially above ourselves. I don't know if you know this yet, but you are a selfish person. You're really selfish. You can see this in your prayers. Most of your prayers are about you. Now, it's a good thing that our God has big ears and he does, right? His ears are never too heavy that he cannot hear us. But we ought to grow at some point in our capacity and awareness of God's blessings to us through others. And as such, petition on their behalf to God since you are part of a royal priesthood. That is a fundamental role of the child of God. And I just want to assert it again that when you and I come into the maturity that God is calling us into Christ, we are naturally praying for people because you become much more aware of their needs, much more aware of their burdens, much more aware of their gifts and potentials, and you want them to reach the highest level of potential they possibly can. Is that not true? I can stick your children in your face right now. You pray for them. Unless you are notoriously selfish, you pray for them and you pray to God across the totality of their life because you want them to reach the highest potential they can. That's not a hard prayer, is it? That's not a hard prayer. Well, for the saints of God, it should be that way as well. And I do want to mark here as we are dealing with our opening points before we go to points two and three in our outline, I want to remark how that the apostle Paul to me is so profoundly impacted by this thing called the gospel in his life that he can love and pray for people repeatedly, he has never, ever seen. Because that's the case. We'll see here in a moment that the way Paul is writing, he's writing a letter to people who have never met Paul. This is going to be part of his exclamation in a moment as to why it took him so long to get there. But can you imagine someone loving you who has never, ever seen you, just heard about you, and because of what you are in terms of how you express your life, they are highly appreciative of your existence. Now that is agape love, because it's not a one-on-one kind of reciprocating love. This would be the objective love that God pours into our heart for people with which we don't necessarily have any kind of reciprocal benefits. Does that make some sense? It is really the fact that Paul loves the camp of the saints. He just loves the community of faith. He loves the people of God. That's the first and foremost. He's unworthy to be part of the elite community. You guys know that. He persecuted the church. And now he's a major foundation pillar in the building of the church. Secondly, we know that his thoughts are that he's committed to prayerful intercession for their witness to continue in the world. He made mention of that in Romans chapter one, where he lays out the fact that over in, in verse 12, that is that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith of you and me. And his exhortation was that their faith had become known abroad. This is why he's sharing the word of God, because their faith had become known abroad everywhere. But this is not only true of the Roman church, which again, he has not directly impacted. The church at Rome is existing because of other laborers, okay? Paul just happens to be glad that the Roman church is experiencing the gospel for a third and final reason, his privilege to be part of the destruction of that beastly system that you and I talked about in Daniel chapter 2, verse 34 and 35. Let me give you a big picture scenario. Daniel two thirty-four. And Daniel is is explaining, explicating, interpreting the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. You and I talked about this before. This is an Old Testament eschatological trajectory into the first century. Here's what Daniel says. He says, oh, Neb, you saw until that a stone was cut out without hands. We know that construction, do we not? We know that that means God is the one that created that stone that that stone was not a product of human labor or human effort. Who is that stone? That stone is Jesus Christ. He's the stone of stumbling. He's the foundation stone. He's the sure stone, right? He's the stone that lays the foundation to Zion. But he's the stone also of which he said himself, the builders have rejected who has become the head of the corner. He's a stone. So Daniel sees a stone being cut out and this big giant uh, Goliath of a image with a head of gold, a chest of bronze and silver and body, the body of iron and clay all the way down to his feet. We know those are the four kingdoms of Daniel 7. And notice what the language says. He was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon its what? that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. So the stone comes into reality, not at the head, that's Babylon, not at the chest and breast, that's Medo-Persia, not at the thighs and loins, that is the Grecian kingdom. That stone comes into reality at the feet. That would be the Roman empire, the last kingdom of the book of Daniel chapter seven through 11. And it is the kingdom that is featured in the apocalypse, as you guys know. It is the Roman Empire in the which Jesus was born. The stone that would crush the kingdoms of this world. Notice what it says in verse 35. I want you to capture it before we go on. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold. That's the totality of the composite of that image, is it not? And notice that he is now speaking in the reverse, because he's using the language of the iron and the clay. That's the legs, all the way up to the brass and the silver, and that's the chest and torso. Now the gold, meaning the head. He says, from the bottom all the way up, they were broken to pieces. How? Together. And they became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. I could talk to you right here about apocalyptic language, because that's the language used in Revelation chapter 21, uh, chapter 21, verse uh, 10, where it speaks, and I saw a, a throne, a great white throne, and him that sat on it from whose face the heavens and the earth fled away. This is apocalyptic language of the final judgment day when all of creation gets out of the way of God Almighty when he assizes all of humanity before his judgment throne. The language here is asserting that Jesus, who is that stone, smote the image and the whole thing came down at one time. Do y'all see it? It didn't gradually come down. It all came down at once. Now, this again is allegory. This here again is symbolic language. This is the language telling you and me that when Christ came into the world and died for our sins, he put an end to the absolute rule of the devil over the kingdoms of this world. So this is what we call in prophetic language, a prophetic future tense, meaning we are seeing what happens to the kingdom before it happens. We're seeing it in Daniel's day. This is 586 BC. Daniel sees this in about 522 BC, even before Jesus comes into the world. He sees all four kingdoms utterly destroyed by this one man. And what is his name? Jesus the Christ, the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense, the rock of Gibraltar. He is God's stone. He is God's leader crushing the Roman Empire. Now I want you to think about this for a moment because notice how it says, and the wind carried them away. Y'all see that language? All right. That's your psalmist. That is the first psalm in your Bible, right? But the wicked are not so, but as the chaff, which the wind blows away. See, if you knew your Bible, you'd be keeping up with me because Psalm 1 verse 1 is about Jesus It's about the only one who knew no sin, did no sin, and him was never any sin. He's the only one that said, no, 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 right? Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor seat in the seat of the scorn. There's not a person in this room that fits that verse, including me. See, because the grammar in in Psalm 1 verse 1 means he never, ever stood in the counsel. He never, ever stood in the way he never ever sat down among the wicked. That can only be one person. Now I know you and I are trying not to listen to the counsel of the ungodly, but sometimes you and I and Pilgrim do, do we not? So we know Psalm 1 verse 1 can't be talking about us. We didn't learn that the hymn book got one author and what is his name? Right. And yet the text tells us, and his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And because of that, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, right? Who brings forth his fruit in its season. His leaves will never wither, and whatever he does shall prosper mightily. That could only refer to Jesus and us in Jesus. And then the text says, but the wicked are not so. But are as the wind that blows away the chaff. This is what Daniel is seeing, and this is what's really happening to our world when you can put on biblical eyes. See, I'm challenging you right now. I'm challenging you to understand that God is on the throne, and that as crazy as this world looks right now, we got to see it for what it is. You and I are not called to walk in denial. But behind what's going on in the on the frontal uh, assumption, on the frontal appearance, there's a God behind this ruling. The whole thing, y'all know that. Right. What gives us comfort is that God is doing His thing. God is doing His thing, and here's what gives Paul comfort. Paul was a part of that Roman Empire coming down, and that was because Paul was granted the right to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Right. And there'll be more to be said on that. But let's go to our first point again under uh, point number two in your outline, which for us today is is point number one. The joy of their salvation in Paul. I do want to once again emphasize the joy of the Roman Christians salvation in Paul. Paul delighted in it. And this is why we were told in verse nine and 10. He prayed so fervently. But would you look at me at sub look with me at sub point B. He had an earnest spiritual longing for them. Look at verse 11 in chapter one. Look at verse 11. Notice what it says. For I long to see you. You see it? I long to see you. That first line is what I want to grip for a moment because it wants, I want us to go back to why it's important to develop and cultivate a love for the people of God. I want, I want to drive this home for a moment. Why it's important to develop and cultivate a love for the people of God in general. The people of God must understand that their position and their blessings and their security is a consequence of the collective body of Christ, right? The people of God must know you're not getting to glory on your own. You didn't even get into the kingdom on your own. This can be a whole message in itself. But what I want to lift up out of that proposition for you, as we were talking about admonition on Friday, I want to impress upon you that what you are, in part, at least, is a consequence of other people's labors. You have not come into the benefits of the kingdom of God just because you individually were all that. You and I are a composite of the collective labors of the people of God from the beginning of time. I quoted it last week. I'll quote it again. Other men have labored and we have entered into their labors. Now we don't know where we are on the timeline of God's trajectory. We don't know. What we do know is we didn't start this thing. You and I are way down the line of a whole lot of saints who have gone before us, who have laid a pathway for us to walk in. Am I telling the truth? And it's important, therefore, that you don't think personally in an isolated, again, narcissistic way that you and Jesus is cool. No, no. When Jesus took this man and plucked him like a brand out of the fire called Paul, who was Saul, he said unto Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And he was talking about the body of Christ because Saul didn't know Jesus. He couldn't get to Jesus. Jesus was a resurrected, reigning, ruling Lord from glory. But Jesus said, if you persecute my people, you have persecuted me. That's the mindset that I want you to grab for a moment. You can hold on to it, put it in your back pocket. I don't care. Here's what you need to know. Your welfare, your well-being, your prospects for the future and you becoming a blessing broadly, even more increasingly, will be the product of you loving God's people. It will be the product of you not neglecting to love God's people. In the same way in which Paul loves God's people, even though he doesn't know them, even though he doesn't see them, his heart longs for them. That's what the text is saying. Let me give you a Bible verse before I go on. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Listen to it carefully. A lot of theology here, but it's important for you to know. The Bible says in 1 John, this this one here is good. Here it is. Whosoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is what? Right. And I've taught you this before. I love the grammar construction. Here it's speaking about us being believers in Christ. And then it says, it's because we are what? Born of God. You need to know the construction there. Believing is the consequence of being born again is not the cause. Your faith doesn't make you saved. You believe because you're already saved. And that text needs to be understood that way. The one that is believing is believing because he or she or they are already what? Born of God. Now watch this. And everyone that loves him that begot. Now the begetter is God. God is the father who begets, Right. The text says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only what? Begotten. The begotten one is Jesus, but the father is doing the beginning. God is my father and he begot me through the Lord Jesus. And therefore his love is in me. I love God and God loves me. But as John says, we love him because he what? First loved us. So don't ever get it twisted. We love him because he first loved us. This is what we call the law of first causes. When you get your gospel right, God gets the glory for everything you are and everything you do. Now, notice what it says. We love him that begot and all those who love him that begot loves him also who is begotten of him. Do you know what that means? That person you got an issue with right next to you, that's saved just like you are, you're obligated to love. That's what Paul is talking about. Y'all got that? Now I'm with Paul. I'm, I'm totally with Paul. Think about it, and we'll push press this through here in a little bit more. But I want you to get the longing because the idea of the longing here is a deep passion for. This is not just a word of expression. Epipatheo is a Greek term that means deeply, passionately longing for. Pathos is our root verb there. Pathos and pathos is always the idea of deeply, sincerely longing for something. When you have a passion for something, it's deep inside, is it not? What Paul is saying is, I have a passion for you, Romans. I have a passion for you. I want to see you. It's so important for you and I to capture. I long to see you grasp that because. Um. Is it true that in our walk daily, we have a cadre or a list um, or a group of people that are saints in the faith with whom we can say that about? Is it true that there are people in the circle of our walk, in the circle of our life, for whom we love and adore with that kind of longing? Is it true that God has blessed me to have enough wisdom to know that when he saved me, he put me in a community. And across that community, I am to impact them and they are to impact me. And we walk together, we roll together, we fight together, we die together. We rise together, we triumph together, we victory together, we fail together, we suffer together. And if that togetherness is coming home, then you understand your job is to love them with the love of the gospel and there to love you back. Now, listen to me, child of God. In this particular area I'm speaking, this is where the enemy is winning the battle in our culture today. The isolated Christian who thinks he or she can do this thing all by themselves and have a low view of the community. Now, am I making some sense? He didn't isolate you. you're a dumb sheep. See, pastor, I didn't come here for you to offend me today, but you're a dumb sheep. Because you way, you way over here. Now, you know what the enemy loves to do, separate you so he can gobble you up. And what the apostle Paul, and see, this is the paradoxical nature of Paul. The paradoxical nature of Paul is this man was in chains. He was constantly going in and out of prisons. He was being beat down. And yet he kept a fire of love for the people of God. That is remarkable. Only God can pour that kind of grace in you, right? But when he does, what it means is you actually see people for who they are in their estimation through Jesus. You don't look at them as mere human beings. You don't play them down because you don't particularly identify with their unique qualities in gifting. You don't minimalize them because they may be over there in God's part of the vineyard laboring. It's all God's vineyard. I'm making some sense, am I not? And, and really, because you and I are reciprocal human beings, the law of sowing and reaping would say to me, if I love enough people, I'm going to get some love back. It may not be 100 percent, but it's going to be something. And in the day of trouble, you need people to love on you so that when you can't go to God for yourself, they can go to God for you and help lift you up. So the Apostle Paul is demonstrating a quality that I wanted to drive home. And and, and also this quality is not locked to the church at Rome. Philippians 1.8. I just want to give you a a little theology before we go on. Philippians 1.8. I want you to see it again here in Philippians 1.8. And of course, now this is a body of believers who knew Paul personally, and they were with him at the beginning of his ministry, and they helped him launch. Remember, Philippi is where our sister Lydia was the seller of purple and a gospel church got s- established there in Acts 18 and Paul launched out into the Gentile churches from there. This is uh, going to be uh, Philippians chapter one, verse eight sis. listen to what it says here. I just want you to capture the same language. For God is my witness. Do you see that? How greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. See it? Now, I love this. I love doing theology. I'll do something for you because you got the first person as his argument for God is my record. That means if you don't really believe that I love you, go go ask the father. He'll tell you how much I love you. What that means is Paul is petitioning daddy God on the behalf of the Philippians, is he not? And then he's saying, I'm doing it not in terms of my own interests, but in the bowels of Christ. He's covering two bases. He's being compelled to pray for the Philippians because of Christ who is in him operating at that prophetic and at that priestly level. Is not Jesus the one who ever lives to make intercession for us? Is it not the spirit of the living God that dwells in us that compels us to prayer? It is Christ in you that drives you to remember what's important and what's important is God's people. God commands that we pray for one another, does he not? But for that prayer to be legitimate, it has to be motivated and driven by the agape of God. It has to pour into our hearts, right? Because faith only works by what? Love. It only works by love. Let me drive this home a little bit more. He said it in First Thessalonians as well. I think it's chapter three, verse six. First Thessalonians chapter three, verse six. I want you to hear the other expression. What's your argument, pastor? Paul said this to all of the gospel churches that God allowed him to be a part of. Here's what he did. He said, but now, this is 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, yeah. But now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity that you have, uh, that you have, Uh, Good remembrance of us always, watch this, desiring greatly to see us as we also to what? See you. Now, that's a mutual longing, is it not? Now, again, if you knew the book of Acts, you would know in Acts 17, which is right before Acts 18, where the Philippians are started, Paul did a work in Thessalonica, and the church got established there. These are all Asia Minor churches. You know what this tells me? When Paul did the work of preaching the gospel there, he really established deep roots in relationships with those people. What that told me was the people were in radical uh, uh, conversation and dialogue and fellowship with Paul so that when he left, they longed for him to come back. They wanted to see Paul again and Paul wanted to see them. I'm going to let that roll with you. I want to let that roll with you. There should be people in your life that when they go away from you, you can't wait till they come back again. And then also, you should, you should be the kind of person that when you are done with your time with them, and don't stay too long at their house. Let me help you right now. I'm going to give you a Bible verse, okay? <laughs> don't stay too long at people's house, okay? Because the Bible tells you you're wear out your welcome, and then they're going to start thinking crazy things about you. But I am saying, when you leave, people should be so impressed with you that they can't wait to see you again. You have to be intentional about that kind of presentation. Did that make some sense? You have to be that intentional about that presentation. We could lock it down to the very pragmatics of coming out every Sunday. You, you, should, be, you should be longing to be part of this event. Am I making some sense? It should be a reciprocal thing between me and you and the whole community that for a couple of hours, we get to love on each other in the gospel and raise the level of the quality of who we are in Christ and share that with one another. That's my next point. Notice what it says in our next point, because I could go on with that, but notice what it says in our next point. And it is not totally unseparated from it. Mutual exchange of what? fullness. So his earnest spiritual longing was in order that he might impart unto them something and that they might impart unto him something. Again, look at it with me over in verse 11 and 12. The text says, for I long to see you that I may what? Impart unto you some spiritual gift. To the end or with the results that you may be established. Now I want to talk about that briefly. In in fact, let me do verse 12 as a group. That is, this is called exegetical. He's going to explain it, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Y'all got that? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I want to come together with you because you and I are called to walk in a level of divine fullness. Fullness the pleroma of God, the presence of the spirit of God in us, our cup filling up, our cup capable of running over so that we can serve each other with full cups and meet each other's needs in the different areas and particulars of our life. When God brings us together, saints ought to be coming together with a joyful expectation of spiritual things being elevated in their life. This is going to hurt, but I'm going to tell you now. You and I come together as believers, it would be a shame if we come and go and there not be a small level of spiritual edification that takes place around who we are in Christ. It would be a shame if we're coming together for a project, for a task, for a material thing, or some other ancillary event. And because we are children of God who dwell in heavenly places in Christ Jesus and have the gifts of the Spirit, that we don't impart spiritual things to us when we're together for five or 10 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour. Am I admonishing someone right now? In other words, your job is not to simply come and go with people who are charismatic. And every believer is. Every believer has something to bring to the table. It can simply be the way you speak. It can simply be the way you gesture. It can be the gift of discernment, the gift of knowledge, the gift of wisdom, the gift of administrations, the gift of helps. Am I making some sense? You have a gift. Now watch this. Wouldn't you and I I assume that if we came together, God providentially brought it about? Did he bring it about? Do you think that once he brought you and I together, he said, I got something else to do. And he took off and went somewhere else that he didn't hang out with you. That he didn't stand there saying, all right, let's do something to elevate our consciousness since we are heavenly minded people. Can we not encourage one another? That's literally the term in your Bible, encourage. It's not comfort. Comfort gives us way too much of the kind of psychological therapeutic idea. Ain't nothing wrong with it. When we're hurting, we want to be comforted. And a lot of times when we are seeking help, if we're healthy, we're seeking help because we need comfort. But that comfort needs to be understood not as singularly or narrowly understood as some kind of physical, somatic healing. Comfort in the Bible is always rooted in your spiritual growth. Did you hear that? The term is sum parakaleo, sum parakaleo. Parakaleo is the term from which we get the comforter or the Holy Ghost, right? The Paraclete. Now, the goal of the paraclete is not to walk around like your, your, you know, your Irish uncle or your, not your Irish uncle, but let's just say your English uncle and say yes to all of your wombs. Yeah, they're there. You're going to be fine. That's not his job. The Holy Ghost's job is not to comfort you in your foolishness. The goal of the Holy Ghost is not to make you feel good in your wickedness. The whole of the, the goal of the Holy Ghost is to get you up out of that mess, Biblical comfort means to be delivered from your woes and the discomfort that comes upon you because of bad choice making. Now, when you have a really good uncle or a really good aunt, they're going to come hug you and say, now we got to talk because I heard you've been doing some stuff that just don't work around the house. Am I making some sense? And by the time auntie goes away, you got some band-aids on, but you glad she came. When uncle goes away, you know, you got some internal wounds, but the Bible's very clear. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. When the Holy Holy Ghost shows up in your life, and he's going to frequently do it through people that he has assigned to you to love you, and he's assigned them to you for you to love them. Now, I know, I know I'm getting in your business again. I need to really keep moving, but I'm just here to say... If we had our way, we would choose who we want the Holy Ghost to bring to our life every day to be the means of our edification, right? He doesn't work like that. I'm sorry, and you ought to know this by your own family. <laughs> if, you, if you could have chosen your family members, you'd have chosen a whole different group of family. Am I telling the truth? You know, you know you scratch your head wondering how am I related to him? But he's doing the same thing with you. How am I related to her? And we both calling ourselves Christian. This is where Christ in you, the hope of glory, should be elevated, particularly when you come together and you discover you have gifts to solve problems. Believers shouldn't come together and then depart and not have problems solved. Even if it's a matter of talking them through and saying, let's take them to the Lord. Next time we come together, maybe we will have some advice and counsel. Am I making sense? That's exactly what Paul is saying here. So our, our third sub point before we move on, for me, is absolutely fascinating. It's everyone's gifts being used for God's glory and the edification of the body and for the further impact of the gospel witness in Rome. That's what he wants to see done. That's what he's getting at here when he says in order that we might mutually engage in a faith conversation that results in our edification and our mutual comfort. I can imagine, can you? The coming of the apostle to the people at Rome. I'm just going to dig into this for a moment and depart. Think about Paul writing you a letter and saying, "I'm on my way." Okay? And when we come together, we're going to get at it. We're going to get down. We're going we're going to deal with some real issues, and I'm coming full of gifts. Because I've said this before, when you and I are walking with the Lord properly, we are walking in a level of fullness that whenever we come together with anyone, God always has the potential through you to be a blessing to them. It is not normal to be an empty handed saint. It is not normal for a child of God to go around with empty cups, begging. It's not normal, it happens. And but in the serendipity of a relationship where God providentially says, Hey, you know, Jess, I want you to go hang out with such and such. As soon as I get that assignment, I'm already thinking, how can I pour into them? Yeah. I'm already thinking, Lord, what gifts have you given me? Help me identify them. Because whatever that brother or sister needs, I want to be able to bless them so when they go away from me, they have more than when they showed up. Yeah. Am I making some sense, Shadow? Think about the Apostle Paul coming to the Romans and the Romans only hearing about his ministry. And what kind of dialogue and conversation would Paul have with a group of believers around the Word of God, around exposition of the Scriptures? What kind of depths would they find themselves going into with a man who was a theologian par excellence? Am I making some sense? If Paul is sitting in your community and you are in a conundrum around all kinds of doctrine. Wouldn't he be a great comfort to help unravel that doctrine for you? All right, here he is. He comes. Paul's coming as the great expositor of the word. You know, that's our emphasis. But a second level of his coming is that he's an apostle. That means the sign gifts of an apostle are with him. His ability to heal his ability to impact miraculously and supernaturally upon men and women because he is an apostle. Think about the apostle showing up, and you know you know how we talk around here. There are no New Testament apostles, all right? Because the apostles can raise the dead. You ain't never seen a brother raising nobody's dead. They lied about it ten times over. I'm gonna help you, all right? Then the apostles can also kill people. Did I tell you that too? As a gift. Peter said, y'all out of here, see you later. But the capacity to do what were called the sign gifts. I want you to hear this. Think about how enriched the Romans were to have an apostle in their community. Stay with me one more thing before we go on. See, this is the blessing about being around mature people in the faith who've had major, major experiences in spiritual warfare and spiritual battles and in conflicts and how to negotiate them and how they overcame all kinds of trouble, trouble you haven't even entered into yet. Wouldn't you want to sit around and hear Paul talk about all of the assignments Christ gave him and how Jesus showed up in those assignments and spoke to Paul personally? Wouldn't you want to hear all that? Wouldn't you want to hear all that? Wouldn't that expand your comfort? Wouldn't that root you so deep in Jesus that y'all would all go out there like hot coals of fire on fire for the master because you hung out with one of his hottest embers? That's what I'm talking about. Now you can simply help me to move on to my next point by saying, help Lord, help Lord, help me to be that very thing. Next time I'm in somebody's presence, take all the gifts I have and put them in the forefront of my mind and help me choose the right one so I can be a blessing to those people. It's so important. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Paul is saying. And and I, I, I see the vision. I see the vision. Paul is looking for an opportunity for a fuller, richer, revelatory experience of Christ in their life because, listen. Every believer that is brought into the kingdom and our job is to help see the body grow right into the fullness of him who is the fullness of God. Every time a sinner is brought into the kingdom of God, the kingdom grows. But that also means every time a sinner is brought in, the dark kingdom diminishes because we're getting the stones out of the dark kingdom, placing them into the kingdom of light. As the kingdom of God grows, the kingdom of darkness diminishes. You need to get that. As the kingdom of God grows, the kingdom of darkness diminishes because God is taking material from Satan's kingdom, which he stole from God, and he's getting it back, and he's establishing his own kingdom. You can make this very pragmatic if you want to. You can make this very pragmatic. I was at a uh, We were at a homeschooling uh, convention this year, which we do almost every year, uh, where a lot of the kids all over the state are a part of a project where Christian uh, kids come together and we do academic stuff like speeches and debates and and all kinds of things like that. A lot of the technical stuff that you have to learn how to do if you're going to be a good presenter in the world and prepare for collegiate level type of academics. Are y'all listening to me? And I was reminded once again of being privileged to be a part of it, because, of course, my wife and I did homeschool some of our kids in part, and we we know the challenges of homeschooling, so we pray for homeschoolers in that regard. But please understand, homeschoolers have figured this thing out. And to be a part of a group of people who are of the same mind around the true and the living God, of people from every ethnic group. Y'all hear me? And for us to be engaging in academics across several different disciplines. And I was super happy because a lot of the saints at Grace were there. So, you know, we always throwing down and uh, I was happy that we were representing. Right. And uh, and I was going look at the mutual edification of the young people to us and us to the young people. Those young people are getting prepared to deal with the real world because they're taking their worldview from an educational level very seriously. Am I making some sense? I really do want this to come home to you because there's this kind of duality or dichotomy in some of our Christian mindsets that we can kind of have a Christian idea over here in the corner and the rest of it is secular. Did y'all hear that? That's a lie from hell. That's a lie from hell. And if you let your kids live within the space of this kind of duality in a way in which you don't seize and bring into captivity that secular system that they're in, because some of us have to grow up in that system we too poor and broke to do anything else, and plus God owns that system too. The gospel has to bring into captivity that whole secular environment for the glory of God in Christ too. That makes sense, right? So, if your kids are going to be doing public school, they're going to be doing public school with largely pagan, God hating, antichrist oriented, trained, and cultured people. Mama and daddy, you have to be serious about insulating your kids. And then even equipping them to be able to be a blessing to a lot of those kids in the secular institution who are lost. And we know that happens, too. So I'm not I'm not uh, dissing the secular school system in that regard. But boy, I can tell you, it's a major stronghold of darkness. Yes, it is a major stronghold of darkness. And it's no wonder our kids end up wrestling, toiling with significantly Romans 1, 18 through 32 as we'll get there next week. Y'all following what I'm saying? And so it was a real joy to see this verse. That is that I may be comforted, strengthened together with you by the mutual faith of both you and me. The people that were there know what I'm talking about. And you and I should be part of um, an advancement of the kingdom in terms of our lives in that way. You should be part of the advancement of the kingdom of God In a small way or a significant way as well. Did y'all hear what I said? I don't care what job you have. You should be bringing the kingdom to it. I don't care what job you have. You should be bringing the kingdom of God to you. You should not be assuming that greater is he that is in them than he that is in you. You should not be assuming that and you should be making an impact. You should be a soldier for Christ, ready for anyone that's crying out help in that secular system, and you have God's ear, and God has your ear, and God says, that's the one, minister to them. Am I making some sense? All right, let's keep it moving then unto the final point that I want to work through and go home. Paul is making it clear to our dear brothers and sisters at Rome that he, he never once detoured to be committed to coming to Rome. Rome is like the big prize. Rome is like the, the ultimate reward, the ultimate aim. The Roman Empire, in so far as Rome itself is concerned, and many of us have been there, ain't even no big deal in the flesh, if y'all know what I'm saying. But we've been there. I'm super surprised at how um, how... How I have learned about how the world is on a physical level, and some of you guys do know this too. If you've traveled the world, what the secular world likes to do when it comes to the world is make every place on the planet bigger and better than it really is when you get there. I'm going to let that sit in for a second. I I've been around the world, and every time I get off the plane, I say, now what's the big deal? <laughs> the other thing I say is, the food ain't that great. I say, Lord, I thank you for the food in the Bay Area, but we got some cuisine. See, there I go talking about food again. I think food is a big part of your reputation when you you are a city somewhere. If your food ain't right, stop it. Am I making some sense? If your food ain't right, stop it. Right, food is going to tell how much you love people. Don't let me get spiritual with you on this, but I will, right. Your Bible is full of the food analogy, is it not? All the trees of the garden you may freely eat. There it is. You were not even out of Genesis 2 where God's talking about food. And the point is, is that food becomes a co-extension of your character and mind. And when the Bible talks about phileo love, loving people in general, okay, he talks about setting a meal before them so that when they eat that meal, they are aware that you are loving on them and opening up yourself to them and your food will speak to your character. Got one more thing to say about that before we go on. Have you ever had a meal somewhere? That's all I'm going to use is somewhere. <laughs> so that means it can be private, it can be public. You, you know, they set a meal before you and immediately upon eating that meal, you go, man, ain't no love in this meal. Do, do y'all know? Wow. Ain't no love in this meal. And when you go away, there's nothing in you that says I want to come back. No love in the meal. Did you hear what I just stated? Please listen to me so I can go on and finish my point. That's significant. Love is a sense. Love is a dimension. Love is a quality. Good cuisine and, and, and chefs, they know this. You cannot cook lovelessly and people love your food. It, it can't be done. And then, brothers, you know you got a problem at home when that food is not tasting lovely. You know you got a problem when you go, Okay. Four days in a row, no lovely food. See, let me move on to my final point. Point number three, I long to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome too. The apostle Paul is stating over in verse 13, these words. Now, I would not have you ignorant brethren that often I purpose to come to you, but was let hitherto, that's a King James phrase that could be fixed better. I was hindered. I was kept back. I was restrained. Y'all got that? I want to talk about that here in a moment. He says, man, I've been wanting to come to Rome because Rome is the tier mark of getting the gospel for all kinds of reasons we can talk about later. But Paul is letting them know I purpose to come to you often, but I was hindered because I'm wanting to come in order that I might have some what? Fruit among you also, even as other Gentiles. So that exegetical parsing there simply means that Paul had never gotten to Rome to preach the gospel to establish local churches. But obviously other people had gotten there. Am I making some sense? All right. So let me help you right quick on an excursion that comes under point number one, uh, point number eight, sub point eight, under point number three in your outline. Providence has taken me the what? Long route. Very important. Sometimes you and I want to do something And we want to do something at a certain time in a certain way. And then God shows up and says, I'm God. That's a short version for saying God's way is going to always win out. And this is how God sanctifies you. Because frequently you and I think we're the king and God's the servant. And we want to go somewhere at a certain time and be there at a certain time and do it in a certain way. Because we just know what's right. Lord, now this is my schedule. I need you to check off on my schedule. There's the plane we fly on. We got to get in at 605, Lord. Be up, Lord, because we got to get there. And then Lord says, no, I'm God. And everything gets discombobulated. And now you are reminded God is God. Now, your motive may have been right. Your desires may have been right. But God got a whole lot of other factors playing into why you can't go or why you can't go now. And for us, We know when you understand the book of Acts and its linear progression that Paul could not go to Rome until he covered at least 15 other bases around the preaching of the gospel and bearing record to Jesus and suffering for the cause of Christ. Did you guys hear what I just stated? He wanted to go to Rome, but God had 17 other stops for him. And in half of them, Paul was beat up and persecuted. He wants to get to Rome And the devil knows he wants to get to Rome because the devil is a territorial demon. He knows when Paul gets there, he's going to tass some butt up. I'm just speaking metaphorically in terms of the power of the gospel, being able to do what it does. Paul is very clear on knowing the power of God in him. He knew how God worked in him. He knew if he gets to Rome, lights are getting cut on, roaches are scattering. Only, you know, poor people know the analogy here. Only poor people know the analogy here. The lights are getting cut out, roaches are scattering, and we're going to do some cleaning up, are we not? (laughs) Paul knows that, and this is why the enemy is trying to stop him at every juncture. At this very point, the Roman Empire, Claudius Caesar, Acts chapter 18, verse 1, has ran all the Jews out of Rome. This is chapter 18. I'm going to walk you through a few verses to give you some context before we get to our final point, which um, is Paul's objective. And And after these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. Let's keep going. Verse two. And found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy. So she was of the Roman ilk with his wife, or he was of the Roman ilk with his wife, Priscilla. You guys know Aquila and Priscilla, right? Now they're Jews, but they're in Rome. Because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to do what? Depart. Depart from Rome. Now, if you guys have been keeping up with me with our eschatological studies, we know that Josephus wrote about the war in 66 uh, AD. And, and the Jews were engaging in uprisings, trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. And so far as they're colonizing the Jewish people. And Christ already told them, you're going down. I don't care what you do. You're going down. But they were fighting. And what they were doing all throughout the Roman Empire was instigating conflict, and they were certainly instigating conflict against Christians, okay? Now, that's a big story in itself. Please let me help you have a a, a jettison view of Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, okay? Here's how that goes. Whenever your religion gets captivated by politics, you turn into a beast. Did y'all get that? That's really simple. That's really simple. Now, it's because when you politicize your religion, you get power. And some people are in it for power. That's where we are today, are we not? You politicize Christianity, it becomes powerful, and now you got the state paying you money to to do things that you know are not Christian. Same thing with Islam. Same thing with Judaism. Judaism is going to matriculate itself up and entrench itself, embed itself in power-brokering systems in order to do what it does. So the Christians... So the Muslims, they're all wrong in that area. Are y'all hearing me? Because the cause of the gospel is not taking over the power dominant systems of the world. It's impacting men and women at the heart level on the ground. I know you got it, but it's hard to buy in a country like ours that's so given over to politics. But here's what's happening. Claudia said, you Jews, y'all got to go. But that also meant Jewish Christians. Because you had Jewish Jews and then you had Jewish Christians, obviously, right? Judite Jews and Judite Christians. And all the Jews had to go because when the crazy Jews were acting the fool, Claudius was not distinguishing between Christians and Jews. All y'all had to go. That makes some sense. So now here's the point. Paul is trying to go somewhere where the emperor of Rome is kicking them all out. So here's Paul's problem. You know, Paul's problem. He's a Christian, is he not? But guess what also Paul is? A Jew. See what he's doing? He's fighting against the wind, is he not? He wants to go, but he looks up and a lot of them believe it. Where y'all going? Claudius didn't kicked us out. Y'all got that? Claudius didn't out. Ask what he means. And that's what I mean by the long route. Our next verse, I want you to see in relationship to that will be Acts chapter 19, verse 21. I want you to explicitly see it. Now, Paul, God had, Christ had told Paul, you're going to Rome. You're definitely gonna go to Rome. That was given to him at his commission when he was converted. Notice what it says. Now, after these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia, this is Asia Minor, and Achaia, uh, Achaia this is near Corinth, to go to where? So Paul has to go to Jerusalem. Because of his love for Christians in Jerusalem. Boy, I could sit right here. I love the Bible because the Bible gives you a better picture of God's saints in the places that they're in than your political world system. Yes, it does. So there is no high political orientation and presence in Jerusalem for Christians. They are poor Christians. They are suffering Christians. They're suffering under the hands of the Romans and they're suffering under the hands of the Jews. Did y'all get that? And Paul is ministering to them there. That's why he wants to go. Because he's just like I told you, he has the love of God so full in his heart. He's not going to Jerusalem because he loves Jerusalem proper. He loves the saints in Jerusalem. But he does understand the ethic. We'll get to that in a moment. To the Jew first and then also to who? That ethic is there. Don't get me wrong. But what Paul is wanting to do is minister funds to the poor saints in Jerusalem because they're being beat down for the gospel's sake. Nothing new. So now notice what he says. We got to go to Jerusalem. And then he says, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. It was in his heart, wasn't it? And then we're in Acts chapter 21, verse 11, where Paul has just finished up ministry with the um, with the Ephesian church. And notice what it says in chapter 21, verse 11, capture this. And when he was come unto us, this is uh, Luke speaking, uh, Agabus is the prophet in the prior verse. He took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, thus saith the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the what? What is Agabus doing? He's telling Paul, your desire to go to Jerusalem is going to set you up to be captive. And it's going to be from Jerusalem that you end up as a prisoner headed to Rome. Do you think Paul said, okay, it's it's time for a change of plans. Did you know some people would change their plans? If you read the rest of the text, Paul says, I'm not only willing to be bound, I'm willing to die for the glory of Christ at at Jerusalem and at Rome. Y'all got that? This is why I love him, because he loves Christ and he loves sinners. Agabus was right in this prophecy, was he not? Because Paul goes to Rome. I mean, he goes to Jerusalem. And those fools bring him into captivity, do they not? As the scripture says, look at chapter 23, verse 11. I'm just walking you through to give you that phrase that he says, but this is a long route because of my love for Christ and God's providence in my life. And the night following, the Lord stood by Paul. See, this is what I was saying. The Lord stood by Paul that night. This is the Lord Jesus. He didn't come from glory. And he's with Paul right now. Are y'all keeping up with me? When the last time the Lord Jesus came from glory and stood by you? Because I want to hear that story. I really do. I want you to tell me how tall he is, what kind of clothes he got on. Now, if you give me Michelangelo's story, then I know we got problems, okay? The people be having all kind of weird ideas about I talked to Jesus tonight. Okay? What did he sound like? Was he speaking English? Was it old Saxon English? Elizabethan English? Did he speak Arab? Did he speak Hebrew? Did he speak Greek? No, he spoke Negro. <laughs> okay, then we know something's going on here, don't we? Don't we? Because you know in our Latina culture he speaks Español. In the black culture, you know, it's it's hood language. All right, so, you know, you got to watch what you eat before you go to bed at night. You really do? You got to watch what you eat. Watch what you eat. Now, the apostle Paul has had an encounter with the master, hasn't he? This would be a jewel to know about if you're kicking it with Paul. Jesus showed up, man. Tell me about it. I want to know. Wouldn't that edify you? Now, you can easily take this caveat before I go on. Please easily take this caveat. Because of who you are in Christ, Jesus can show up to you anytime he wants to. Please understand that. He is not inhibited by any of us for him to do abnormal things if he wants to. It's not going to be normative, but if he wanted to have a special occasion with you to show up, he could. But now if he do, that means you're a specially special person, Okay. Take that both ways, okay? You are a special person if Jesus shows up. And it's probably that he needs to talk to you about something that he doesn't want you to share with anybody else. Right, so please understand the idea of, uh, Lord, I want you to show up. If he shows up, it's probably because you're in really bad shape and none of the angels could get to you. Pastor Jesse couldn't get to you. The elders couldn't get to you. Your friends, and the so Jesus has to do it himself. Here, the apostle Paul as God's choice servant for the advancement of the gospel. And Paul was going through serious persecution here. And Jesus, as our great high priest, is there to comfort him. If you take the propositional forms there, we can make a theological application. Christ is always near you when you are in the deepest trouble. Did that come home? Christ is always near you when you are in the deepest trouble. Didn't he give the command, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel? And lo, I am with you always. That makes sense, right? So I do expect the Lord to show up in some kind of way when I'm in deep trouble. And he always does. That's an application, point of application. But notice what it says. That night following, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so must you bear witness also where? That means he's going to Rome. Nothing's going to stop him from getting there. Y'all got that? But if you know from Acts 23 to Acts 28... That boy went through storms. I mean, literal, Urochiladon storms, and he went through different trials. They tried to kill him. He had to stand before the uh, rulers at Jerusalem. He had to stand before Festus and Felix. You guys know that. This was an arduous journey to get to Rome, and I'm just going to give you the last verse that will actually substantiate in the book of Acts that he got there. We are in Acts chapter 28, verse 16. Look at Acts 28:16 this is going to help us going on in our further uh, excursion through the book of Romans. So you can say this, he actually did get to Rome, okay? Paul finally got there, but by the time he got there, the letter you and I are reading, he has already written. Okay, y'all got that? It's important for you to get that. No, that's called context. And when we came to what? And when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guards because Paul was a prisoner. Was he not? Because he had to be sent to Rome because he pleaded for Caesar to hear his case. Here it is. Uh, But Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. So if you don't understand what this is, this is the privilege of a Roman citizen of whom Paul was to have his own home but he had to have a centurion hanging out with him until his court date. And if you know Acts chapter 28, well, he had two whole years where people could come to him and him preach the gospel to them until he had to meet Caesar who cut his head off. Did y'all get that? This is the apostle that we're talking about. One more thing then. Point number 3, subpoints B through F. Paul says in verse 14, I'm driven by grace, and it's a grace debt that compels me to come. Notice what he says in verse 14. I want to quickly get to verse 16, unpack it, and we're going home. He says, I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarian, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Just a brief insight there. This gives us an insight into the deep, deep pathos of Paul for being saved. When he says, I am a debtor to you all, what he's saying is, I used to serve the dark kingdom in killing Christians. God has now saved me and made me an apostle so that I am a debtor to bring the gospel of life to you Romans of whom before I was killing you. Let me see if I can make a translation out of that for you and me. There was a time when you weren't saved. I'm sorry if you thought you were, but there was a time when you weren't saved. And in your darkness, you were stealing from God. And when you were stealing from God, Pastor, I never stole. You just lied. That's called stealing. You were stealing from God because you stole his glory. You stole his time. You stole his honor. You stole his resources. You didn't give him praise for it. You and I are thieves from the beginning. It's a good thing that God saves thieves, even to the uttermost that come to him by faith, right? And so, uh, as Paul was, so you and I were, we were living a life of theftdom. Now, the Bible says the wages of sin is what? Yes. That's exactly right. Here you and I were under a death sentence because we owed God righteousness. We owed God obedience. We owed God honor. We owed him love. And we were debtors to God's law. And he had every right at any time in our life to take us out, to, to pull a ticket on you, to pull a receipt on you and say, hey, come here. It's appointed unto men once to die. And after that, the judgment. Any one of us could have had our ticket pulled. And found ourselves in a nanosecond standing before the God of heaven and earth. Am I making some sense? He didn't pull your ticket. He paid your ticket in the person of Jesus and set you free. That's what he did. That's what he did. And he let you keep living until the time that he would call you by his grace as we are learning that pilgrims are. Am I making some sense? You are dead of the grace, child of God. You are a debtor to grace. And Jesus told us how to pay that debt off. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. We should be supporting the very mechanism that called us out of darkness into his marvelous light because we owe men and women. We owe men and women the right to hear. Jesus saves. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left the crimson state. He what? he washed it white as snow. And there's a message of redemption for men and women that they must hear before God pulls their ticket. And Paul is committed to it. Now, here's what he says. Here's what he says. I love this. Look with me at verse 16. He says, because because I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Do you see it? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And then he marks because it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Let me unpack this just a little bit for you. When Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel under subpoints B and C, or C through F, here's what he's saying. I am not ashamed of the gospel because there's nothing in the gospel for me to be ashamed of. So I want to work with you on that. Right. So when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, it is not fundamentally him recoiling from it as if he has a defect in him. What he's saying is the gospel does not embarrass me. The gospel does not let me down. The gospel does not lie, fail or change. The gospel does not say one thing and does something else. When he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, he's saying the gospel is not a proclamation that God will do something and then God doesn't do it. It's not a proclamation that God has done something, but then you discover that he did not do it. Please, when he uses the term, I am not ashamed, he's saying because the gospel has proven to me to be exactly what it is. And this is what the gospel is. Technically, it is God's dunamis. It is God's power to do exactly what God said the gospel would do. Under your third point, it's the power of God. I have in your outline, it's power. It's power. It's what? It's real power. Power. It's real power. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.18. I'm going to talk about this just a tad and walk it through because I want you to get it. He's not ashamed because there's nothing in the gospel that ever went wrong. Like the gospel is a friend with Paul and he's a faithful friend. Like the gospel became Paul's identity and the gospel never betrayed him. Isn't that, isn't that a worthy gospel? Like every time Paul showed up in the name of the gospel, the gospel showed up in the name of Jesus. And then the gospel did what the gospel does. It comes in dunamis. Now, this dunamis is showing up in many ways of which you and I want to think through right now. He says, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish. What? That's exactly right. The gospel doesn't save everybody that hears it. It's not meant to save everybody that hears it. And the gospel certainly inclined not to pay any attention to people for whom the cross is foolishness. Did y'all hear that? Right. The gospel has to work with you who somehow think you are better in your condition than you really are. So when you hear the message of God assuming a human nature and dying on the cross for the sins of rebellious human beings, when you go, that's not for me, then God's going to take his time and work on you. Until you come to understand, my only hope is that gospel. Okay, but in the meanwhile, he's going to let your foolishness about assuming that the gospel is foolishness keep you in deception. Listen to what he says. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish, what? But unto us, but unto us, but unto me, unto you who believe this gospel, it's is the power of God. Do you guys see that? So I want you to understand the construction there because this will help you when I get back to Pilgrim. It's foolishness to those that are perishing, but unto us, which are presently being saved. Capture the construction, which are presently being saved. Those of us who are presently saved are in the process of salvation. Did you get that? which are presently being saved. In other words, our salvation is an ongoing journey. God called us by his grace and the power of the gospel opened our eyes and it put us on a journey of which we are on that journey because of the power of God. Did that make some sense? Because we are being saved, not only individually, but collectively. Think about it like this. God saved you, but God got other people he has to save too. Am I making some sense? So God is saving us. The us is in the collective again. Don't, you don't get to always say, God saved me. No, God's saving us. I'm going to narrow this down and make application. I'm going to narrow this down and make application. Suppose you're the only one in your family saved, Christian. And you are getting on your horse and making your way to Calvary as you should, because that's where God is going to draw you to, right? If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me right? But once he draws you to him and you get through the wicked gate and your cross is, your burden is liberated by the glorious cross work of Christ, is God done with you? Is he done with your family? Is he done with your wife? Is he done with your kids? Please understand, there is a Christiana behind Christian. Am I making some sense? And this is why we continue in the faith, loving men and women, because we are in the process of being saved. Does it make some sense? We are in the process of being saved. That is the power of God. This is why I like the way Paul puts it. Listen to what he says in verse, uh, verse, uh, verse 16. To everyone that what? To everyone that believes. Not to one that believes, but to everyone that believes to the Jew first And also to the Gentiles. Paul saw this gospel save men and women like dominoes. And he knows everywhere he goes when Jesus is in it, folks getting saved. Did that make some sense? And this is what he's saying. The same gospel that saved him is saving others. Now, as we're learning, you and I will go through a unique pilgrim journey. God will hold you out for a long time before he breaks you down. But that's all according to his own sovereign providence. For those of us who are being saved, we have to be patient with others while God is bringing them to a saving knowledge of Christ, too. That's what Paul is happy about. Its power is real. Listen to Second Timothy chapter one, verse seven through nine. I want you to capture a few more verses for us to understand. Its power is real. His power is real. I know how powerful the gospel is. Can I tell you how powerful it is right now while I'm preaching the gospel? God's dealing with somebody. I know that for a fact. I know that God is dealing with somebody for a fact. He's calling them out of darkness. He's illuminating their mind. He's confirming them in some things. He's shifting them. He's moving them in certain directions right now while under this gospel. Does that make some sense, child of God? It could be your child. It could be your friend, whoever's listening online. That's the way the gospel works. That's why we preach it. Because we know the Holy Ghost hunts people down. He hunts them down. He taps them on the shoulder. If they're hard-headed, he gives them a knuckle. You know how your daddy used to do? He gives them a knuckle. Then they know it's daddy. Because some of his saints are hard-headed saints. Pastor, why you preach so loud? Because some of them are hard-headed saints. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of what? That's dunamis and love and of a sound mind. I love that triad. Look at verse eight. He's going to explain it. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. So Paul is telling Timothy, be like him. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. The gospel can work now. Timothy had a problem with persecution. Okay, I'm just letting you know. Paul resolved that persecution is coming. And he's trying to get Timothy to understand persecution is not going to stop God from using you. Okay, okay. Now, that's a conversation we can have at another time because Americans, we don't we don't like it. We ready to sell Jesus out for just a little uh, political persecution. But I'm here to just tell you persecution is part of how Jesus shows up more intently in your life, more vividly in your life. Because when you are down, he is up. When you're diminished, he is increased. And that frequently occurs in the midst of trouble. I don't like trouble, but I love Jesus showing up in my troubles. Isn't that true? You'll know it. You'll go, man, this trouble is a mess. But man, the Lord is near. The Lord is clear. I sense his presence. His word is vivid. And and what I love about him showing up is that he breaks subtle bondages in your life every time he shows up. Because you and I love to stick ourselves in chains of bad decisions. And when Jesus shows up, the shackles fall off because you weren't made to be a slave of anyone but Christ. And a lot of times he's showing up to deliver you. He's showing up to deliver you and you'll know it'll be a paradigm shift in your understanding. This is what Paul is going to say right now. If you guys are not bored with what I'm saying, listen, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, according to the what? Right. There's power for your affliction. There's power for your affliction. Verse nine. I love this. I'm going to do verse nine and 10 who saved us. And then what called us with what kind of calling? A set-apart calling, a sanctified calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That means God's plan was placed in Christ before you had a being, and he brought it to pass in time so that he hunted you down and told you it's a done deal. Rest in Jesus. Is that not true? The gospel's a done deal. It comes to you in a power that accomplished eternal redemption in Jesus long time ago. And then it comes to you in a power that brings you into the believableness of that gospel. Please understand, not everybody believes the gospel. And when you look at the person who doesn't, you have to understand that there's a power missing because it takes power to believe. Did that make sense? Right. And God gave you grace to believe the gospel today, and he didn't give another person grace. He left them to their unbelief because we're all unbelievers until we become believers. Did y'all hear what I just stated? We're all unbelievers until we become believers. And to become a believer, God has to overcome your resistance, your prejudice, your antithesis, your antipathy. Your not wanting God has to be overcome by God wanting you. That's the power of God. Ask Paul. Paul didn't want this gospel when he was Saul. He met a man that was greater than him on the Damascus Road and the show changed, didn't it? That's what Paul is teaching, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Look at verse 10. I love this. Here it is. This is, this is an extremely important proposition. But it's now made manifest. What's made manifest, Pastor? The gospel. How is the good news made manifest? By the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Whoa, when? In his incarnation. He appeared in his incarnation in his life that he lived perfectly as the God-man, in his death at Calvary's tree, in his resurrection from the dead, which means that he didn't sin when he died, he bore our sins. Because if he was a sinner, he would have never risen from the dead. Am I making some sense? When he rose again from the dead, he had justified us from all things which we could not be justified by the works of the law. That's why we talk about the risen Lord. He's risen. That is the gospel. He's risen. The debt is paid. Sins are paid for. Righteousness is procured. A man can be made right with God by faith in Christ is that good news child of God. Listen to it. And here's what it says. The Savior who appeared has abolished what? He's abolished. Do y'all believe that? Do you believe that your sin debt is abolished? Do you believe that the threat of uh, death is abolished? Do you believe that if God wanted to, you don't have to die? I should stop right here. It's really true. If God wants to, you can go right to heaven right now. Did y'all know that? Cause the sin debt is paid for, the death debt is paid for, the death of death and the death of Christ is paid for. Death has no sting. The grave has no victory. If God wants to, he can dispatch you to glory right now. And no demon in hell could accuse God of unrighteousness. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone that believes on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And the one that, is, that believes on me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's what he said to Mary and Martha. Now, you and I know that death is an economy. He uses it. Just because I'm teaching now, I'm almost done. He uses some of us, gonna die because there's a point in the man wants to die. Because God has a plan on the day of resurrection of raising our bodies from the dead. Did that make some sense? But he does not have to do it. He could come right now and the rest of us, we can just go on up to glory. Y'all do know that, right? We can check on out of here. Now, I know that's a real desire for some of you. Lord, I don't want to see death. Would you just come wrap this thing up and catch me on up? That's the Harpazo doctrine. We'll be dealing with that. But there is a blessing in death. When I am preaching sermons to uh, people in memorials and funerals, I am preaching Psalm 116 constantly. Precious in the sight of the Lord, is the death of all of his saints. There are great lessons in our death for people who are still living because we get to remind them that there is a day of resurrection coming. Let me just say one more thing with that. You and I don't know the hour of him calling us to death. So between now and death, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and the pardon of your sins, God's merciful to you right now. God's merciful to you to be breathing his air and to have heard his gospel, and to have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus. He's merciful to you. He, he does not have to leave us in this state of rebellion, but he does because that's his nature. He's a long suffering God. He's plenteous in mercy and goodness and he delights in showing mercy, but we are gonna have to pay that debt if we die without Christ under this merciful tenure of him letting us live and breathe his air while we constantly rebel against him. Am I making some sense? One more thing here. The gospel not only declares the abolishing of death, but it has brought life and immortality to light. Do you see that? It has brought life and immortality to light. The nature of the preaching of the gospel is to tell men and women where life can be found. I can be here a long time. When you think about all the other religions in the world, half of them don't know where life is. And a lot of those religions are promising you things that make no logical sense. Others are saying you got to work, 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 work. And you might get life, you might not. That's certainly Islam. There are others that are saying there's no life after death. That's Hinduism. Am I making some sense? Folks are ignorant of life and immortality until you hear the gospel preached. What the gospel says is God, who is our life, has obtained eternal life for everyone that believes on him. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that does not have the Son of God does not have life. Do you believe this? Verily, verily, Jesus says, he that heareth him that sent me has eternal life. That is a grand proposition, child of God. Is that a grand proposition? Now I'm getting ready to close down here. I'm in evangelist mode right now. I'm in evangelist mode right now. And what I'm saying to you is, are you sure that you understand the way of eternal life? Are you sure you want to die without this simple proposition that in him is life? in Christ is the life. He purchased it at his resurrection. He is it in his essence. He gives it freely to all who call upon his name. Do you want to die without Christ tonight when you don't know anywhere else in the universe where life can be found and can be found as simply as believing on the name of the only begotten son of the living God? Now you also know I am trusting that the Holy Spirit is wedging the souls of the hearts of men in my preaching right now, wedging the souls of the heart of men because of the rebellion. Only the Holy Spirit can crack that hard heart and open it up and pour in the oil of grace and give men and women an inclination. Maybe this man is saying something right. And so when you leave here, you will not leave here by yourself. God will go with you and the word will impress you until you bow the knee in the secret chamber of your own heart and say, I believe that Jesus the Christ is Lord. My argument is that 2,000 years up to this moment, Christianity is not done in a corner. This thing is as broad and as clear and vivid and historically attested to up to now as anything else. There are men and women from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue who believes this very gospel I'm preaching. Do they not? They live, they serve, they suffer, and they die for the cause of Christ. Do they not? They worship the one true and living God like we do, maybe in their own way, but it's the one true and living God. He is holy, 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 the Lord God almighty. Blessed be the name of the Lord God. Am I telling the truth? And and see, and you know it because he's going to make you a worshiper of God, He's going to make you a worshiper of God. You're going to sing his praises one day. You slave of Jesus Christ. You doulos of the Savior. He's going to bring you into the midst of the saints. And you're going to exalt him for who he is and what he did for you. Amen, 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 amen.